The views and opinions expressed by any hosts or guests of WJMS Radio do not reflect the beliefs of its owners or associates. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to WJMS Radio or the show hosts whose words, advice, and or opinions appear from or on our website or on air. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Are we on the air? You're listening to WJMSRadio.com. Jam. This chick is a sick individual. You're tuned in to Sound Off with your girl Jams right here on WJMSRadio.com. There is no competition. Good afternoon, folks, and welcome to Sound Off right here on WJMS Radio. This is your girl, Jams. So excited to be with you guys this afternoon. I have a great show for you, something that is near and dear to my heart, something that I get quite a uh, just enjoyment out of discussing um, whenever I get the opportunity. Before, of course, we get into that, I have some announcements to make. Make sure you check out WJMS Radio on all your favorite social media. That's Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter. You can also check out the show page at WJMS Sound Off on Facebook, all one word. That's where you can find all the information on the guests who uh, have been on the show, who are coming onto the show, and who are currently on with me right now. So make sure you check out those pages and like them as well. And of course, I want to thank the folks behind the scenes that make Sound Off and WJMS possible. Thank you so much for all the work that you guys do. Shout out to my team of interns from this summer who helped really kickstart some things for us and of course shout out to all you guys that tune in and stay listening to me every single weekend and make me part of your weekend routine without you guys there's no need for me to be broadcasting so I always am most grateful for your support and your continued dedication all right so I have a great episode for you guys today you guys may recognize this gentleman uh we've seen him all over the internet of course but I have special guest Sam Whiteout and he is an activist and he's a cultural commentator he's actually already viral he's an internet sensation every time he posts a video up everybody loves it we all do (laughs) and he's using his platform which is great to address and discuss issues that he's passionate about social justice issues and the things that are going on around us in the community that need to be talked about and so he's been doing all of those kinds of things in his own unique and special way Uh, central to his message of course is the the message of be you be great which is the idea that you don't have to identify as something to care about it or recognize its value and allyship is essential tool in strategically working towards progress which I think is amazing because there are so many times that people are like well how would you know what we're going through when you're not one of us but it doesn't mean just because someone's not one of us it doesn't mean that they can't understand or they can't help move the movement forward so definitely excited to have you on the show this afternoon Sam welcome and how you doing today hey thanks for having me I'm glad to be here Of course, of course. So I gave the audience just a little bit of a snippet of who you are as a person, but why don't you take an opportunity and kind of give everybody a background on who you are, where you came from, and what brought you to where you are today? Yeah, so first off, thank you so much for having me. I think this kind of stuff is so important, and I obviously love to have these kinds of conversations. Basically, I mean, I think you covered the basics. I fell into an incredibly large social media platform, one that I was not expecting or planning on having. And for me, it wasn't as much an opportunity or a decision about whether or not I use this as a place and a platform where I can talk about uh, social justice issues and other issues about which I'm passionate. It it was a responsibility. It was something where if I care about the things that I say I care about, this is something that I have to do, right? This is something that I have to figure out um, how I can scale the kind of work that I was doing on the undergraduate level, before the social media 
kind of blew up mm-hmm. and see, uh, you know, what kind of progress we can make and what kind of space we can create for the kinds of conversations and the kind of work that too often uh, falls through the cracks. One thing I love about, you know, your platform and the BUB Great Idea is the fact that you, you mentioned that, you know, just because you don't identify as something, it doesn't mean that you can't support something. And I think that there's so many times where we will, not even just we, but just everybody kind of discredits people who try to, you know, join the movement or help move things forward because they don't look like or they don't sound like or they don't identify as the people that they're trying to move forward. And it's so frustrating because I'm like, if somebody's an ally and somebody is trying to help the, the movement go forward, you should accept that, you know, especially if there's somebody who's genuine about their purpose and what they're doing. So I love that that is something that you're so transparent about and something that you, you bring so much authenticity to is the fact that you don't have to be part of the group to understand the struggle or to help the struggle or help the movement. So I, I definitely applaud you on your work in the field for that. I appreciate that. I think, I mean, at the same time, there, of course, needs to be elements of accountability. And I think there needs to be, and you alluded to this, right, a, a sense of genuineness and authenticity, right? Because we can't just have folks out here calling themselves allies or calling themselves X, Y, and Z, if that's really not what they're doing at the end of the day. So what's, what's really important is that we find ways, I think, particularly on the other side, right? So if we're speaking through the lens of race, we find it on the white side of things. If we're talking about gender for guys, if we're talking about LGBT issues for straight folks, for those communities to realize that it is okay, that it should be normal and it's totally acceptable, if not um, an expectation that you care about people who are different from you. Um, Because I think what I've found is that, particularly with uh, the issue of race, right? Like the black community has been largely and overwhelmingly accepting of folks who want to do the right thing and who want to get involved. The yeah. difficulty is, I think, showing to folks who perceive a lot of obstacles in getting involved that it's actually uh, very possible and very doable, and you can integrate it into your life. Yeah, I agree. And the one thing that I think happens, and one of the reasons why I think that you know exactly what you said is true, is because there are so many times that we deal with this sort of cultural appropriation, if you will, and a lot of times it gives you that side eye, like what? Like wait a minute, hold on a second here, you know. And it, it just makes everybody a little bit suspicious and a little bit skeptical of you know how authentic somebody might be. Like somebody could have the most genuine sort of uh, you know just intentions for what they're doing and it comes across totally wrong because they didn't respect the culture. They didn't understand what they were doing, you know, and it's, I think that plays a part in some of the reason why, you know, there's not always a genuine acceptance of allies who are not necessarily from the, the original group, you know, does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I hundred percent agree that there's going to be instances of cultural appropriation and that I think on a case by case basis, you have to be able to evaluate approach appropriation versus appreciation. Yes. Right. But I think largely speaking, right, the black community in res- with respect to race, the gay community with respect to, to sexuality, things like that, you know, these, these communities are overwhelmingly accepting, more, much more often than not, of folks who want to make a difference. The key is that if you are getting involved in conversations that you're not used to, if you are getting involved in issues that don't directly affect you, you've got to have not just an open mind, but an, an open heart, open ears to be ready to listen and, and learn and, and also realize that you're going to screw up, right? Like yeah. I've made plenty of mistakes and I've tried to be transparent about that so that we, we don't have to keep reinventing the wheel, right? The idea is not that, the, that, that there is somehow some sort of perfect path to follow, to never screw up, but in fact it is through, you know, the, the kinds of slip-ups and then not getting defensive and, and wanting to learn and to improve. It is in those moments that we can move the needle the most. I agree. I definitely agree. And I think that 
acknowledging and understanding that you're going to make mistakes is one of the biggest parts of it. You know, so you're already on, people are already on the right track if they're understanding that they're human and they're not going to, there's no, there's no book on how to walk that line the right way. You know, so when you do, it's like, okay, you know, my bad, I'm sorry, let me fix this, you know. So I think that that's one of the most important things about it is just acknowledging the fact that you're not always going to get it right. There's always going to be a slip up here and there. And as long as you're learning from that and moving forward, I think that's probably one of the most important things. But I want to bring it back to your beginning a little bit more because I know, you know, shout out to uh, Pennsylvania. I'm actually, even though I'm here in New York and I believe you're calling from New York as well, I actually went to Arcadia and I believe you went to Villanova. So I know. At, oh, yeah. Yeah. So we were, you know, kind of kind of close to each other a little bit, but I know you had a little bit of some good times and some bad times at Villanova. I mean, I had the same thing at Arcadia University. Can you talk a little bit about some of the maybe things that happened at Villanova that may have possibly fueled this fire for social justice that you currently have? And, you know, just sort of what were the situations around them and, and kind of what happened within you that made you really want to pioneer some of the things that you're doing now? Yeah, so, I mean, well, first of all, shout out to Arcadia. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> funny, Arcadia is actually in the charter for my uh, for the the Cap Out Fraternity Incorporated chapter that I'm a part of, the Delta Eta chapter, so it includes a bunch of schools in the Philadelphia area, and Arcadia is actually one of them. Yep. So that's really good. And actually, Arcadia used to be known as Beaver College. Yes, it did. <laughs> it's Way funny. I'm actually wearing that the Beaver College T-shirt right now, which is kind of funny that you say that. Oh, yeah. there we go. <laughs> yeah, that's dope. But yeah, I mean, I think so. Villanova was a particularly ugly place for me personally, mm-hmm. um, as it was, I think, for a lot of people who value justice and respect and equity. Um, Villanova was a place where everyone was very, very polite, but beneath that veneer of politeness was a really homogenous and a deeply unwelcoming environment. Mm. And so for me, right, it, 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 it put into clarity for me, right, a lot of the issues that I had already become really passionate about, the kind of things that I grew up talking about, learning about, listening to, watching, etc. And when I got to Villanova, it was such a pronounced version of the racism that I knew existed, but had not really sort of come into contact with in the same way. And I found myself kind of looking around like, wait a minute, am I the only one who sees what's going on now? Am I the only one who feels like I'm going to go crazy? Yeah. And I wasn't the only one. I was able to find a community at Villanova that was hiding in plain sight. And it was with those folks that I started to organize and and sort of work on the undergraduate level with different types of community programming and community events. And to be perfectly frank, like we have a lexicon for this now talking about organizing and activism. Back then we were just like, all right, you know, things are screwed up and we have to fix them. Like we just, we just got to fix this. We don't have time to necessarily put a label on it. It just has to get done. Yeah. And I, you know, what's interesting about that is I can probably say the same exact thing for Arcadia. You know, it's, being is from a it's, it's a predominantly white institution, of course. So there was always situations, and there was many times where I would be one of the only in a classroom, or one of maybe two or three in a classroom. And yeah, it, it does. It gets to be a little uncomfortable. It gets to be, you know, the conversations get to be a little tough, um, especially when you start to take classes on social justice issues and things like that. And it's like when you are the quote unquote token in the class, you're like, oh, this is this is going to be great, <laughs> you know. So I mean. At the end of the day, it is who you surround yourself with, because I will say, similar to your experience, I did surround myself with a group of people who made my college experience what it was and made the college experience kind of a better place for me in a place where it didn't always seem like the smiles were genuine. You know, it didn't always seem like the 
the nods on campus really, really were what you thought they were. So it was it was definitely an eye opening experience. I can say the same thing, you know, that that <laughs> that you can say. But yeah, it is. You just really just got to jump in and be like, all right, something didn't happen right here. Let's address it and figure out what's going on. And let's not do that again. You know, and it was something I mean, that, that being said, like, yeah. I, I 100 percent tried to transfer. Like I needed to get the hell out of there and uh-huh. it didn't work. Yeah. Right. It was it, that was not that apparently was not in, in the cards for me. And so then I kind of had to figure out how I was going to navigate a place that was so incredibly hostile to all the things that I cared about. Yeah. And, and it wasn't just that this was some sort of social dynamic, but that this was something that was supported on an institutional level. Mm. It was supported on an academic level. Right. You know, I was constant. Now, I, granted, this is not to say that everyone at Villanova was somehow evil or that all the professors were like, Bible-toting racist, but the problem was that far too many folks had very clearly defined what they were and were not willing to talk about, and that existed on an institutional level and an academic level. And so it wasn't just that you were dealing with, you know, essentially, you know, kids, college kids, doing messed up stuff and and, and being racist, but it, it was it had the backing, it had the the power and the forcefulness of being supported on every level. Wow. And it was that, I think, that creates such a dynamic. And I see that at all the schools that I go to, to varying degrees, right? You see the way that communities are underserved, underfunded, and underrepresented. And Villanova was just a particularly poignant and sort of tragic example of that. Wow. Wow. So let me ask you a question, too, because I, you know, looking through some of the the information that I found on your website as well, you know, you talk a little bit about your upbringing and how your parents were very vocal. Mm -hmm. They were activists and things like that. So do you think having parents like that who kind of at a young age really distilled in you this idea of speak up and speak out about things? Do you think that that kind of played a role in you know, some of the things that you take on today, you know, like some of the, the different social justice causes that you're passionate about and stuff like that? Or do you think that that was more or less like just a starting point for you? I think it was a huge influence. I don't think I realized how much of influence it was until I got to places like Villanova. The best way that I can describe it is I grew up in a household where we simply didn't change the subject when it, something would come up. Yeah. Right. So whether we're watching a movie for a family movie night or something comes up on the news or I bring something home from school, whatever the case may be, we're not going to not talk about it because it falls in the category or one of the several categories that you are sort of taught and learn to know to be uh, sensitive, right? Like, ooh, let's yeah. not talk about religion and politics. Let's not talk about this. Let's talk about that. We didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it wasn't like my household was a classroom. It wasn't as if somehow, you know, we're sitting at dinner. It's like, hey, like, Pass the broccoli and define institutional racism. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't like that. Um, but I think we were, my sister and I, we were never presented with the idea that something being different meant that we should care less about it or that we should feel embarrassed for liking it or enjoying it. So mm-hmm. whether that was movies that would, you know, uh, starred, uh, black folks and were black stories or Asian stories or gay stories or music that was too black or too gay or too whatever, right? Mm-hmm. I just didn't grow up. I had to learn from my classmates in, you know, middle and middle school and high school that I was the weird one, right? That I was the mm-hmm. one who was not normal. Cause I was like, wait a minute, y'all don't, y'all don't do this. <laughs> wait, that's right? not what y'all do. <laughs> 
right? <laughs> and then I get to Villanova, and it was such a pronounced difference. Yeah. It was one that was so hostile that it was categorically different, I think, from what I had experienced before. It wasn't like I grew up in some sort of, you know, fantastical yesteryear, like, liberal dream where it's like, oh, there's no racism and everyone gets along and we're <laughs> up east. I, was, I knew what was good, but it was interesting to have to confront it in a way that I had never had to do before and in a way where I seemed, or at least I felt like I was the only one who was noticing it. Yeah. Right. And you have that sort of moment of vertigo where you're looking around and you're like, well, wait a minute, where is up, where is down? Because nothing feels right. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know what? I think uh, we're going to take our first quick break of the show here. Um, when we come back, we're going to dive into some of the work that you're doing with GOSO. I had the opportunity to work with that organization. They're absolutely wonderful out here in New York. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the work that you're doing as well as some of the stuff about these prison statistics and the recidivism rates and, and sort of what's going on and some of the other activism work that you're involved in. So, again, folks, make sure you uh, lock into our social media. We are at WJMS Radio on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back to Sound Off on WJMS Radio. This is your girl, Jams. If you're just joining us, I have special guest Sam Whiteout on the phone with me. You may recognize him from some of his uh, Instagram videos and Facebook videos where he is strolling ever so smoothly with his fraternity brothers, of course. Uh, but we are talking oh, about... Oh, gassing it. <laughs> I'm not, though. The millions of views gassed him, man. That was like the smoothest shimmy that we've seen. I'm telling you. <laughs> you would put everybody to shame. But uh, right before the break, we were talking a little bit about his upbringing and his background and some of the things he experienced at his alma mater, Villanova. Uh, we're going to change gears a little bit and talk about some of the work that he's doing with GoSo. So for those folks that don't know or for those folks who have been fans of the show for a long time, you may remember the episode that I did on the Getting Out, Staying Out program with Mr. Mark Goldsmith um, and some of the folks that work behind the scenes there. It was a really, really great episode uh, that just talked about the work that they're doing with the folks down in Rikers Island, the inmates that are there, and just helping to combat some of the recidivism rates that we're seeing in New York City and hopefully as they expand into to other different places as well. But just really t- caring about the inmates in a way that other prison systems are not seeming to do. So I was able to connect with Sam actually on Instagram because I saw his picture where he talked about some of the work that he was doing with them. And I immediately thought to myself, I need to bring this this man on here and talk about what he's doing because recidivism and the prison industrial complex and all of the things that surround it and the intricacies of it is just such a conversation that you guys all know something that I love to talk about and something that I love to discuss and, and put on a platform and really, really point at it and just say, look at what's going on here and pay attention to what's happening. So when I see somebody who's in the field doing the same thing, I like to bring them on and kind of get their take on what's going on. So Sam, can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with getting out, staying out and some of the things that you're doing with them or some of the stuff that you have done with them in the past? Yeah. So Getting Out, Staying Out is an amazing organization that I actually came to know through one of my managers who, through one of his former colleagues, uh, actually sits on the board. And he brought the, in, the, the institution and the idea to, to my attention because he said, look, this is right in line with the kind of stuff that you're passionate about. And I think that you could really be able to help them out. And so what I do with them is I participate in some amazing programming that they have. They do these uh, interview program workshops and it's a cross between like professional and social development because basically what they're able to do is give these guys an opportunity to practice a job interview that could be a make or break situation in whether or not they're able to provide for their themselves and their families right the recidivism rate that's coming out of rikers island is about 66 percent um the recidivism rate for folks who complete the goso programming is less than 10 which yeah. is unbelievable. That's and the amazing. idea here is very simple, that if, you, if people have the resources, the skills, and the opportunities to live their life and provide for themselves, there is going to be a substantially lower likelihood that they're going to find themselves wrapped up in the criminal justice system again. Yep. And so what, what GOSO does is treats these guys with the dignity and respect that they have always be- deserved, but have too often been denied. Right? And so I think that my work with them not only revolves around the interview prep, but around being a resource for them, whether they want to meet up and chat, whether they want to honestly shoot the shit and relax a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys work unbelievably hard. And for them to have some time to just chill and relax and we can talk about, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm a bit younger than a lot of the, the, the professional development coaches that they work with. So I know my role and I know my lane. Um, and so we've been able to do some cool stuff. I've been able to sort of be a little makeshift photographer for some of the guys who are doing different art projects. Because, again, we also have this conception of people who come out of the criminal justice system that they are walking stereotypes. Yep. 
that, you know, they are some sort of caricature, a drug dealer or some sort of evil criminal. And in reality, a lot of these guys were in the wrong place at the wrong time where they made a mistake and were not given the same, you know, leniency that somebody like me would have been given had I fucked up when I was their age. Right. You know, I think that very often we refuse to acknowledge the privilege that a lot of us come from. And I, that for me, it's really important to be honest about that, that had, had I done, for example, you know, had I been caught with a bunch of weed or a bunch of this or a bunch of that, I likely would not have had my life ruined at 16. Yeah. Right. I would not have been sent to one of the most dangerous prisons in the country. Nope. And so I think that what Goso is doing is incredibly important and we should find any way possible to not only help them out, but to use this as a case study example for other cities. You know, Goso is not an alternative to incarceration. It's not a part of the criminal justice system. It is a volunteer program, right? Yeah. The Goso clients who are guys who range from the ages of about, I think they go from like 16 to 24. It's entirely volunteer. They are, it is not court mandated. Uh, it is none of that. And the other thing that Goso does is they partner with businesses around New York for internship programs. So Goso will actually pay the wages for one of their guys to work at, let's say, um, uh, what's that place? Uh, the taco spot. There's a bunch of them. Uh, like um, Chipotle? Or what are we talking about? No, I think it's like <laughs> Dos Tacos or Dos Oh, Toros. Dos Toros. Yeah, Dos Toros. Yeah. Yep. So they will actually fund the first like two to three months of one of the Goso guys working there. And then at the end, Dos Toros has the opportunity to take on them as a, as a, as a full-time employee. And so these kinds of opportunities simply don't exist. There is even with the ban the box, which is, was a, a policy initiative and, and something that was very well intended mm-hmm. to get rid of the question on, on employment applications. You know, have you ever been convicted of a crime? Yeah. Uh, the problem is it's actually seen a negative impact because even though the, the, the question has been banned, we find that employers are just making stereotypical, <laughs> often racist yeah. assumptions and not giving anybody the benefit of the doubt. Um, and so it's really important for GOSO to be able to work with these, these businesses and get you know, folks like me that, to donate some of their time and, and, and try and lend some of the, the stuff that, that I've learned over, over my years as, as an intern, as an employee, as a this, as a that help these guys because nobody deserves it more than them. I agree. And you know what's what's interesting about that is, you know, GOSO is a program that exists to fill a void that the prison industrial complex is not filling. You know, like in the beginning when prison was sort of first developed, the idea was to put a person in the prison and reform them and put them back into society so that they could function again in society and they could, you know, be uh, well-meaning members of society. And I think what's happened was, We've gotten so far away from that with the prison industrial complex, with the advent of uh, invent of private prisons and prisons for profit. We've gotten so far away from rehabilitating prisoners. We've now started to look at prisoners as simply paychecks. You know, like we make money or they make money to keep people locked up. So the the idea of them having a recidivism issue or coming back to prison after they've been let go is great for them because it's a continuous paycheck. They want them to come back to prison. And so a lot of these programs that used to help prisoners do just what goes those doing, like, you know, job readiness and GED programs and stuff like that so that they could come back out better than when they went in don't exist anymore. And now we have to insert, you know, yeah, programs well, like this to, to fix it. For sure. I mean, I would even go further than that and say that I don't know that prison in this country has ever really been designed to reform folks, give them the opportunity 
to pay sort of a debt back to society and then to re- reintegrate. I think that it has largely been a, a punitive system. I mean, think about it. Even it goes back as to you know the the you know 18th and, and 17th centuries. We put people in jail for owing money until they can pay it back. Well, how the hell are they supposed to make money to pay back a debt if they're Not locked in a cage, right? Yep. I think the prison industrial complex complex and the system of mass incarceration that we've now started to develop a national conversation around is has magnified this. But I think all it did was exacerbate an already existing issue and 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 capitalize on already existing prejudices and problems in the way that we think about criminal justice. You know, so I think that programs like GOSO are an amazing interjection into a system that is otherwise deeply flawed. Yeah. Um, and if there's any way that we can find public policy solutions to incorporate what GOSO is doing, I think we need to do that. But of course, these are the programs that don't get funding. And I think there is also still wild, rampant, white supremacist-oriented assumptions that are made about people who get wrapped up in the criminal justice system. I agree. And I mean, we could go on, you know, like I've I've been uh, trying to get Michelle Alexander on this show to have this a similar conversation as well to kind of talk about the caste system that exists now because of, you know, having a misdemeanor or a felony on your record. It's basically a way for people to legally discriminate against you. You can no longer vote. You can no longer get public assistance, all kinds of different things. And it's, you know, the prison system, like you said, has been is such a tragically flawed system within this country. And it's sad because we have. We incarcerate more of our people than anybody in the, in the world. And it's really kind of crazy when you look at what the size of our population is in comparison to some of these other countries around the world whose, you know, prison populations and, you know, incarceration rates are way lower than us and have much higher percentages of the population than we do. It's really, really, it, it's eye-opening. You know, the more you go down this rabbit hole, yeah. the more you see and you're like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, you can look right now at what's going on in California with the wildfires, and there are even juvenile inmates who are serving as firefighters to combat that fire and are doing so essentially as slaves, people who, when they are done, will never be legally allowed to become a firefighter, even though they are involved in fighting one of the biggest fires in American history. Exactly. You know, and it's it goes for pretty much all things across the board with prison. You know, you've got people who are in prison doing jobs for five, 10, 15 cents, 25 cents an hour just to put money on their books to make a phone call on a, you know, a phone line that is owned by a company that's making money off of them, of course. And it literally is just a system that is just so it's it's just it's it's unbelievable the kinds of things that go on inside of these prisons, not just private prisons, but you know public prisons as well. And it's it's transparently corrupt. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the the villain that you know is a villain, but you're just like, yeah, it's a villain. We don't really care about it. Nobody really does anything to challenge it or to to change it. Um, but I want to ask you a question and, and kind of pick your, your brain on something here. So I know you're, you're sure. probably familiar with the Khalif Browder story and what happened with him up at Rikers absolutely. Island. So, I mean, in terms of his story is, is absolutely just ridiculously tragic and just one of many, to be honest with you. He's not the first and he's not the last, you know. So, I mean, in terms of GOSO and what they're doing, do you know sort of what kind of programs they may have to help with that? Like maybe is it counseling and stuff like that or, or just anything that can help inmates who have gone through something similar to maybe what Khalif has gone through or went through to try and help prevent something like this from happening again? Yeah, so GOSO, which again, for folks who may get a little uh, confused with some of the acronyms, GOSO stands for Getting Out and Staying Out and it's an anti-recidivism organization. And so 
they are staffed by some really amazing and unbelievably qualified social workers who spend at least once a week on Rikers Island working with and talking to and staying in touch with and supporting and mentoring um, inmates. And that was one of the things that obviously when, you know, for those of you who don't know about Khalif Router, Khalif was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was accused of stealing a backpack. Um, and it was something not only that he didn't do, but even if he did steal a backpack, he ended up spending unbelievable amounts of time yeah. in Rikers Island because he could not afford bail. He was beaten senselessly, not only by other inmates, but by the guards. He was put in solitary confinement for extended periods of time, which is absolutely a human rights violation, in my opinion. Yeah, it is. Um, and when Khalif was eventually able to get out after three years in Rikers Island for a crime he didn't commit, and even if he did, it was a backpack, yeah. um, spent three years in Rikers, he finally gets out. There was a huge national attention towards this story. And yet, unfortunately, the scars of what took place on Rikers Island would not leave Khalif, and he ended up taking his own life. And so I think that what Goso is doing is a, a way to get in as much as possible before it gets to that level, so that these guys on Rikers don't feel so alone, so that they understand that there are resources for them when they get out, and there are people who believe that they are people just as much as anybody else. And too often, even folks who would otherwise describe themselves as liberal and socially justice minded, you know, we have a tendency to, to discount people who've made mistakes yeah. um, and to say that, well, you know, maybe you wouldn't have gotten wrapped up in the criminal justice system if you were doing everything right. And the reality is that that's just, that's just not true. And so we need to be particularly mindful about making sure that we don't think that just because you committed a crime means you're not a human being anymore. And that, I think, is at the, the very base of what GOSO does. They are experts. They are unbelievably educated and passionate. And all that is great. But at the end of the day, the core of their work revolves around treating these people like people. Yeah. And when you treat people like human beings, I think you're, you, you'll be amazed at the responses that you get and the ability that they have to overcome obstacles that I know. I don't know what I would do if I was one of these guys. I don't know what I would do if I was police. And so the strength that they exhibit is profound, and um, we should support that. And to be perfectly honest, if we are thinking about this, even from the coldest, most unemotional perspective, yeah. we are losing incredible talent, ideas, innovations, inventions, what have you. We're losing out when we discount these folks. And so... It would not only be in their best interest, obviously, it would not only be the moral thing to do, but it would be in all of our best interests materially to stop discounting a huge population of people. I agree. And when you take into account the psychological and emotional damage that it has on families when family members are incarcerated, it's also a loss because when you're thinking about your dad or whoever or uncle, brother who's in prison, the creative side of you or the side of you with special talents gets a little bit suppressed because those emotional scars and those traumatic scars take over your psyche and take over what's going on in your brain. And you're not thinking about creating and, and doing things that are happy because you're not happy. You know, there's a part of you that's missing. There's a part of you that feels helpless. You know, there's a part of you that that it's really traumatic. gets frustrated. Yeah, exactly. You know, and right? it's, it's, it's a genuine thing. diagnosable trauma that exists not only on an individual level, not only on a familial level, but on a community level and even on a generational level. Yeah. You, know, you look at communities that have been historically over policed 
and it is tantamount to an occupation, right? Case in point would be Ferguson, Missouri, a small yeah. suburb of St. Louis that is a majority black town over policed by an overwhelmingly white police department. And so you look at, you know, Mike Brown was not the exception to the rule. He was the norm. Yeah. He fell in the same system that had eaten up, you know, thousands of kids who were just trying to, to make it through the day. Exactly. You know what? I had a conversation with somebody the other day um, on the show. We talked about the idea of community policing and why we have people in the communities policing them who aren't from there. You know, because honestly, if I can say if there was a black cop in the neighborhoods of, you know, Ferguson or if there was a black cop, you know, in Trayvon's neighborhood where he was, the outcome would have been drastically different. Because if you have somebody who comes from that location, you have somebody who lives in that location with those folks, they're going to know little Johnny. They're going to know little Mike. They're going to know little, you know, whoever. And they're not going to default to pull my weapon. I feel threatened. They're going to default to, hey, listen, cut it out. You know, like, don't make me call your mom. Like, it's a community feeling. And I honestly feel like when you have strangers in a community who don't know the people, who don't know the situations, who don't know the circumstances, who don't know that little Mike has ADD or whatever is going to run crazy and, you know, might look erratic, they're going to default to pulling their weapon. They're going to default to feeling threatened. They're going to default to all of these different reactions that are totally not what needs to be happening. Whereas if you have somebody in that community who knows these people, who knows what's going on, who knows the background, they're going to be able to talk to them on a like you said treat them like human beings talk to them on a human level and don't treat them like they're suspects you know and I think that community policing in that sense would go a much further and longer and better way if we had people in the community who identified with the people who are there because they would understand what's going on yeah I think that there are certainly elements of community policing that can be helpful I would push back just a little bit though to suggest that the issue of police violence extends far beyond whether or not someone is from there and that actually you can see as would you know as examples by what took place in Baltimore I think it was a week two weeks ago that the only difference between black police officers committing acts of police violence and white officers committing acts of police violence is that the black officers are fired and actually investigated more often than not Um, but the reality is that you know the issue of police violence and the way that we think about policing as as almost being at war with the community rather than being a part of the community um, extends beyond lines of race or class or geography. Um, so I do think that there are elements of, of community policing that are great. I do think that we should have cops and firefighters who are from the neighborhoods that they serve. I think that we do need to have departments that are representative of the communities that they serve, be that racially or religiously or uh, from the perspective of gender. Yeah. But that's not the end-all, be-all, right? There are some really specific policy initiatives there's an amazing organization called Campaign Zero, right? And they created a 10-point platform that, that laid out tangible, realistic policy initiatives that can be done to drastically change the way that we think about policing. Um, so I think it has to go, it has to be approached from multiple different angles. Um, but I do agree with you that for as long as the community and the police feel like they're on, on sort of opposite sides of a game, no one's going to win, right? I agree. 
I agree. But we're, we're going to take our second quick break of the show. Uh, when we come back on the other side, I want you to expound a little bit on some of those, you know, initiatives and things that need to be in place to to make measurable change in the communities. I definitely want to dive into that a little bit and talk about some of those policies and how they could affect what's going on with policing and community relations. So again, folks, make sure you check out our social media. We're at WJMS Radio, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter. You can also check out WJMS Sound Off for all information on Sound Off. And we will be right back.
Welcome back to Sound Off on WJMS Radio. This is your girl, Jams. If you're just joining us, you have missed the better part of a wonderful episode with special guest Sam Whiteout. He is a cultural commentator. He is a figurehead at this point, and he is definitely a community activist who has been working with GOSO and other programs to talk about prison recidivism and how we can affect community change within policing and things like that. Right before the break, we were talking about some of the things that we could do to make policing more effective in our communities. And, you know, Sam, you had mentioned um, just some of these initiatives and some of of these real life policies that need to be put in place to make measurable differences. So can you talk a little bit about what those policies are and just some of the things that you think could make a difference in how policing is handled in the United States? Yeah. So first off, I mean, this was this was a platform that was created by an amazing organization called Campaign Zero. You can find more about them at joincampaignzero.org. And it's headed off by some amazing activists, DeRay McKesson, Brittany Packnett, and Samson Youngway. And they are some criminal justice reform experts, some activists and policy experts. And so they come up with a 10-point plan. And I won't list all 10, but I think that there is a couple that are particularly important to me, right? The first is that we introduce genuine levels of community oversight, right? There needs to be a way for the community to articulate in ways that will result in change what is working and what is not working on the part of the police, right? Because at the end of the day, the police are there to serve the community. Mm-hmm. And if, if the community doesn't feel like there is an outlet for them to be heard and for them to be seen and for change to come from that, then that's where trust begins to break down and they start to lose faith in the legitimacy of of the police. I think the other thing that we need, very simply, is a limit of the use of force. We simply have this wild idea that somehow uh, it is normal for police to kill people. There is no industrialized country in the world that kills its citizens the way that we do. Um, So we need to restructure the way that we think about de-escalation and what we see as justifiable use of force versus wildly excessive use of force. I think another really important one that actually isn't talked about that much is fair police union contracts. I am a bleeding heart liberal. I think unions are terribly important. And I think that police unions are important. But as they exist today, Police unions really only serve as a shield uh, to protect police from any consequences of their work, which is a problem. It creates police forces that are static and are not responsive to community changes and to reform. Mm-hmm. Um, there are police union it is very common in police union contracts, for example, for it be it would be impossible to find out if an officer has been investigated for excessive use of force, right? That is the kind of information that should be the opposite of private. That should be the kind of information that is readily available uh, to protect communities from people, from the the so-called bad apples that police want to blame in in lieu of of systemic change. And I think there are are obviously a, a number, I think we've hit, what, four of them? Yeah. I think the last thing that's really important and should be really obvious is demilitarization, right? We saw in 2014 in Ferguson uh, community activists and general community members who might not not identify as activists be stared down by military snipers, by tanks, by massive SWAT teams. And there is simply no reason for this. In the aftermath, and still currently, um, with the the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was leftover military equipment that has been sold at essentially practically given away 
to local police departments all across the country. And these are police departments that don't need it. I think it would be even difficult to argue that New York City needs the artillery that Ferguson had. And so we simply are arming our police to the teeth and then being surprised when they create their training regimens around that and then they find ways to use them. Mm-hmm. And so uh, demilitarization is a huge part of taking away from the police some of the tools that enhance their ability to do the wrong thing. Uh, it sort of gives them opportunities that they don't need to have, if you will. So I think that, you know, you can learn more about this platform at joincampaignzero.org, and it, it really lists everything out in a really easy to digest and understand way. A lot of times we think about policy changes and about politics as being very high level and difficult to approach. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't have to be the case. And so this is a perfect example of that. And I think GOSO is a perfect example of that, of the way that they approach really complex issues, but do so in a way that is not necessarily easy to understand. It's not that they're dumbing it down, but they simplify it and they get to the point. Yeah, and it's it's a very streamlined process of, of making a difference in somebody's life, which is really, really important. So before we close the show out for the, the afternoon here, I do want to give you an opportunity to talk about any other endeavors that you may have going on, like any other maybe events or just other things you may be involved in within the community that you might want to, to bring some light to or to share with the audience today. For sure. I appreciate that. I mean, so I spend a lot of my time traveling, speaking at high schools and colleges, at conferences and conventions, and talking about what it looks like to integrate civic engagement and social justice into your everyday life, right? We have this understanding of activism that it's sort of an all or nothing game, that if you can't dedicate, you know, 25 hours a day to it, that you can't do it at all. And I think that's misguided. I think it's unproductive. I think we can find ways to orient orient ourselves to issues that are important um, in a way that we can be productive and that we can be consistent and it can be sustainable. So that's Mm -hmm. what I talk about when I work with whether it's high school students or undergrads or even middle school students, and and talking about being engaged, uh, whether it's all the way from voting to getting involved in school boards and getting involved in things that affect you in your community. It doesn't have to be, you know, overly complicated. So, yeah, and, and, you know, I'm always down to continue the conversation on social media and everywhere. You know, I'm Sam Whiteout on all the platforms. You can even text me 917-983-4308. And I, you know, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. I think that Talking about this stuff is incredibly important, and and getting this into the national conversation is is a huge step towards making some progress. Definitely, and it was my pleasure. I'm very, very glad that you were able to reach back out to me on Instagram, and I'm so happy that I was able to have you on to talk about the things that you're doing and just some of the different initiatives that should be in place to start helping to make a difference in our communities. I think it's definitely wonderful, and I want to applaud you for all of the things that you've managed to accomplish, even given you know the troubling times that you had at Villanova and you know the stuff that has could have been an obstacle that was insurmountable, but you've been able to really turn it around and, and make some awesome strides in the community and to really make a difference. So, you know, shout out to you and everything that you're doing. And you know what I meant to say too, you know, there, you, it's not just you, right? There's got to be a team of folks behind you that help you do the things that you do. So is there anybody else you want to shout out before we close out the show today? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I have a, a great couple of folks that I work with, but I think there's some amazing voices to turn to, people to learn from, you know, Mark Lamont Hill, uh, Clint Smith, Wesley Lowry, Dre McKesson, Brittany Packnett, Singo Singangwe, these are some amazing folks doing some some valuable work, whether it's in the arts or politics or journalism. And these there are some amazing voices, some folks that I always turn to for guidance. Um, 
So, yeah, I really appreciate it, and thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. So, folks, I'll be back again next week with a brand-new episode of Sound Off. Make sure you're here every Saturday at 12 p.m. to catch the content. I want to thank the folks behind the scenes that make Sound Off and WJMS possible. Thank you guys for all your hard work. And I want to shout out all the folks that tune in on a regular basis and listen to the show. Thank you guys for your continued support and your dedication. Everybody have a safe and happy week. We'll catch you all next Saturday right here on WJMSradio.com. Hi.
Thanks for listening. Tune in 24-7 at WJMSRadio.com.